by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this, uh, this section has a lot in it. And the writer, I, let me make, uh, defend myself before I start. Verse 11 says, I'm talking about very difficult things. So uh, he, he's dealing with things that even he considers hard to understand. If you remember back in chapter 4, he said that Jesus is without sin. And then in chapter 5, he's going to say that he was made perfect. And what I want to deal with tonight is <clears throat> especially the idea of being made perfect. And what does these, you know, these two ideas have to do with us, with our salvation? If, I, if we read Hebrews and the New Testament through the notion simply that Jesus died for our sins... Uh, and then we talk about the lamb without blemish. Uh, that is a way of understanding he was without sin and perfection. Unfortunately, I think that's exactly the wrong way to go about understanding these words. And also, in other words, I think it's backward in that we don't really understand who Christ is through the lamb, but we understand who the lamb is through Christ that we're going to get a fuller meaning of both perfection and the, and the significance of sinlessness. Um, so if we understand sin, as this is my key point here, if we understand sin as an orientation to death, as Priscilla or Luke, maybe, uh, has described it in chapter 2, then we can understand that Jesus did, by not sinning, did not give in to this orientation. That is, his being without sin has more to do with his life, uh, with the fact that he's modeled life for us. And maybe, maybe that's not even strong enough that he's given us a life as high priest that is not directed by or oriented to death. And so I think his sinlessness, if we understand sin in that way, is uh, explained by that. By the same token, if we locate the point at which he was made perfect, and this is sort of controversial for some, but I think it need not be controversial, that is, when was Christ made perfect? Uh, and, and, of course, the idea here is that his perfection is what is being made mediated to us. That as high priest, his, he's not simply made perfect and that's it, but the idea that uh, the impetus behind our own sanctification, our own uh, perfection, is his perfection. And I think in my argument tonight, and I'm going to make the case for it, is that his perfection is specifically connected with his resurrection. Now, I don't mean to equate his perfection with his resurrection, but to say that there is the culminating point. There is when his perfection is achieved. So his resurrection is not simply something tagged on to his death, which often, and I have to plead guilty here, uh, is the way we, we do that theologically. But his resurrection is the basis of his life and the nature of the life that is mediated to us. You know, that we receive resurrection life in baptism. 
uh, he, Hebrews equates Christ's priesthood then as the causal power of our being perfected. We could say in Pauline terms, it's the causal power of resurrection life. And if we understand the impure or the imperfect, and that's the way the writer is, is using the term, you know, he's going to talk about the law uh, or the human conscience as being impure. Uh, the, this perfection is that which is going to make that which is impure perfect. And the reason it's imperfect, and I, you know, we can see this already in chapter 2, but we'll see it elsewhere, is the imperfect is oriented to death. In other words, he's going to specifically equate the two things. And perfection is accomplished, then, with the kind of life that he gives. All of this in argument that he's talking about, his resurrected life. His resurrected life is one that has, you know, last time we talked about it, passed through the heavens. Uh, but his resurrection life is also the culmination. Uh, this chapter talks about he's passed through human suffering. He's not succumbed to sin or to, to the, you know, what we would tend to, to an orientation to death. And so he's a high priest who's acquainted with our weaknesses, but he's also one who is able because of his own experience to strengthen us in the midst of our own suffering and weakness because he's overcome these in his orientation to life. So his perfection specifically, you know, the writer says that he is a high priest who is able to aid us. He's able to help us. Uh, we talked last time, you know, he passed beyond the heavens and then we also talked about the word is the penetrating word, that it's those two things are simultaneous. I think that the function of the high priest, and I'm going to talk about this tonight, is that uh, what makes the qualifications for being high priest, he's endured suffering, but he's attained enduring life, penetrates to the heavens, penetrates the human heart. Those two things, those two ideas are, are interconnected. What afflicts the heart and conscience of humankind is the orientation to death. It's the taking up of death or the fear of death as a way of life. Hebrews compares the blood of Jesus to the blood of Abel and the blood of bulls and goats just as he compares the sacrifice of Jesus. And there is the spilt blood of Abel, there's the blood of which, you know, the sacrifices that is consumed by death. And this blood sacrifice is not efficacious. It doesn't do anything. On the other hand, there's the blood of life of Jesus. We've already talked about by blood that we mean a life dedicated to God, which is not subject to death. And this is what cleanses our conscience from sin. This isn't magical, if you just followed what I just said. There's a logic here. What's, the plague, what's plaguing our conscience is the orientation to death. The reorientation of his life cleanses our conscience from this orientation to death. Uh, the glory to which man is called 
uh, is that he should grow more godlike by growing ever more human. This is uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox notion of theosis. I think it's connected here. Uh, the deification is very similar to the perfection. That is, perfection here is participation, as the writer of Hebrews will spell it out. So many commentators, you know, well, the question is, how was Christ made perfect? I think that many commentators are going to mislead us at this point. They're going to say he's made perfect with his death, and his death is what's offered in the Holy of Holies. And so they would tell us that Christ's high priestly service was primarily his death. Uh, but his death, uh, you know, and then that becomes the atonement. That becomes what's offered. But what, I, what I've been arguing throughout, and especially in chapter 5, to is this isolates his death from his life and his resurrection. Uh, you know, last time we saw the offering of Jesus' blood is the presentation of his entire life. It's the presentation of himself. We talked about the Yahweh goat. Remember how excited you were when I talked about the Yahweh goat? Uh, that is, the Yahweh goat is the dedication of a life to God. Jesus, as the atoning sacrifice, is, a, is one whose life is dedicated to God. So, uh, I don't think that the writer... Priscilla is thinking of the cross as the place that Jesus is offering, you know, that he's doing, or it's, sim it's not simply the cross that he's offering up uh, to God. It's not death that Jesus is bringing. Uh, instead, he goes to, uh, that the offering was presented in heaven. And he says that several times, she says that several times in Hebrews. The offering is not an earthly offering that he's passed through the heavens. In this passage that we're reading, he connects two passages from Psalm. One is about the Davidic Messiah, and the other is about Melchizedek. I still am not going to talk about Melchizedek very much, uh, because he's going he's gonna to dwell on Melchizedek later on. But he's bringing together this idea of Jesus as son, Jesus as human, Jesus as anthropos, that he suffered, he died, and was perfected. And this this is the, the basis of his function, you know, his immortal life, his enduring life, qualifies him as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there are two ideas of priesthood and kingship. You know, here is Jesus as king and priest that are joined together. And they're not, you understand, they're not naturally joined together in the Old Testament. But in the person of Christ, these two offices come to be joined in the sense of humanity, of earth, and of deity, of heaven being joined together. Uh, the other thing here is the word, you know, perfection, uh, this is Stephen Long. He says, Hebrews begins by drawing our bodily development as human creatures. The author contrasts immature, infant, mature, or perfect. And of course, perfection or maturity might be the translation. That we're being brought to perfection. Um, and so the, the 
in, right after this next week, we'll talk about solid food. What the solid food does, it belongs to those who are being made perfect, who are being brought to maturity. Uh, and so there's a direct con- uh, continuity between 5.14 and then 6.1, where he says, go on toward perfection. That is, we're, we're go, uh, just think of it as go on toward maturity. As I'm describing this, we need to be sorting out what what is that maturity, you know, that and I think as we describe what perfection or maturity is in Christ, we can understand what it is for us. Um, 10, 14, 11, 40, there, 12, 23 is going to talk about Christ is the source of our perfection. Uh, and that comes between the that Christ was made perfect. He's the source of perfection, and Hebrews contrasts, you know, Christ is able to make, make perfect, and the Old Covenant, he's going to, at four different places, say that the Old Covenant could not bring you to maturity. It could not do what this what is being done for us in Christ. Um, this, is, uh, this is Stephen Long. I thought it was a quite a... Uh, an interesting quote. It's a long quote from Long. If the first covenant made perfect, we would not need another house beyond that of Moses and David. What is perfection? We get a new house. We get a new dwelling place. If the first covenant made perfect, Joshua's rest would have been sufficient. Chapter 4. What is perfection? It's the perfection of our rest in Christ. If the first covenant made perfect, the Levitical priests would not have had to repeat their sacrifice. This is in 5, 7, 9, 10. He says this again and again. So that Jesus' sacrifice, whatever that is, is that which enables us to achieve perfection. And of course, what I think part of this is that our own perfection is inclusive of a sacrificial giving. If the first covenant made perfect, we would not need the other priesthood of Melchizedek. We'll talk about this more, but you know enough about this that Melchizedek is a type that is used in the Old Testament that is not of the tribe of Levi. In other words, this is a priesthood forever. So, without father, without mother. The way that the Levitical priesthood worked, it worked through genealogy. And it was foreshortened by death. The priesthood of Melchizedek is one that endures. It's forever. But maybe forever is the wrong word. There is a quality to it. The quality of life, enduring life. If the first covenant made perfect, God would not have promised another one in Jeremiah. So we've entered into an alternative promise. If the first covenant made perfect, uh, the prophets would not have prophesied sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And of course, the body of Christ, the dwelling of Christ, the abiding in Christ, I think are a part of the perfection. If the first covenant made perfect, then Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob would have already received the rest, but they still wait for what they're, you know, they still wait. 
what they're waiting for is that they might be made perfect. Uh, If the first covenant made perfect, Mount Sinai would have sufficed and we would not hope for Mount Zion. So the incompleteness in the first covenant is found in the hope that Christ's perfection secures the inheritance, the rest. And this is not a denigration of Judaism. It's not a denigration of the Old Testament. But what we see in Christ is the completion that is promised in the Old Testament. And I think then the per the, this gets at the notion of perfection. What's the Greek word here? Everybody knows this, the Ted Greek. It says telos, right? Uh, so it's achievement, execution, resolve, fulfillment, carrying out. Uh, it's to add execution to the words. That is, there's the words, and then the perfection is the carrying out of the words. It denotes totality. It has to do with fully entire. I'm just quoting the TDNT here. Uh, continually, unceasingly. A passage that uses the word that's interesting, 1 Timothy 1, 5-6. But the goal of our instruction is love. Where was the word perfection? Did you catch it? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Goal, yeah. Uh, So, being made perfect, the English sometimes... You know, that, that may grate on us a little bit because it may ring more of, or simply of moral perfection. Uh, I don't, that, that is not the centrality, the central part of this focus. This perfection, I think, has to do primarily with an enduring life. Certainly it pertains to morality, but it's not focused simply on morality. Uh, so we're to go on and toward perfection, we're to go on toward maturity, we're to pass from infancy uh, to the full development of our humanity. Who has that fully developed humanity? Well, Christ does. He's the fully human one. Uh, So all of the above, you know, this is uh, long again. All of the above conditional sentences could also have been written if the first covenant had uh, uh, had not pointed in the direction of this perfection, then Christ could not made perfect. The comparison here does not denigrate Israel. It, indeed, even though it claims that that covenant is passing away, it is only passing away because of the greater thing that has come, which is perfect. So here the, you, you hear the feeling of an enduring covenant. So Perfection is one of the things that qualifies Jesus as high priest. I think there's three things here. He, it says that he, his ability to sympathize with those who suffer, he suffered. The fact that he's called by God. The fact that he's passed through death and that he has an enduring life. And this then, I think, each of these are part of the perfection. So he had to go under. He had to undergo suffering. But I'm, I'm doing something a little bit. I'm falling Moffat here, you know, in the argument about when the perfection was attained. 
part of it is the tense of when was it in the suffering? You know, it's subsequent to the suffering. Is it in the death? No, it's subsequent to the death. He has to pass through all of these stages of life as part of the perfection, but the perfection is not attained until the resurrection. This is implicit, I think, throughout Hebrews. That the resurrection, you know, we've talked about the bodily ascension, requires the resurrection. So the writer is not going to explicitly focus on the resurrection, but it, it has to be there for it for the logic to work itself out. Stop me here if I'm losing you. But, um, but I thought you were saying, maybe you already clarified this, but the profession happened at the ascension. The, yeah, the, the, the resurrection is the achievement of the, uh, the perfection and the ascension then is the ongoing state of perfection. Um, the writer is focusing on the ascension. The, but the point is he's not focusing on the ascension to the neglect of the resurrection. The bodily ascension requires the bodily resurrection and he's talked a lot about the bodily ascension of Christ Mm. and so that uh, the argument would be well at the resurrection and then the movement to ascension maybe you could even think of that as in other words but but the key thing here it's not simply a spiritual ascension it's not oh Jesus did that stuff in his body and now he leaves the body behind. But the body, uh, the bodily resurrection tells us what the nature of the ascension was. So to be high priest, uh, there had to be this everlasting salvation. Everlasting here wouldn't have the resonance it does in, you know, Jesus is already eternal. He's already infinite. But what is being made eternal, what is made being made infinite, is his humanity. So you think his physical body literally ascended? That seems to be what the writer of Hebrews and the New Testament are teaching. Where did it go? To the right hand of the Father. Yeah. On a UFO. So this is something he had. Uh, this I'm not saying we can necessarily apprehend this, or that this is understandable, but I think it's the argument of the Book of Hebrews. If his resurrection, you know, if if his ascension is a spiritual ascension, I don't think the Book of Hebrews would be structured in the way that it is. That his perfection then. Uh, he possesses on the basis of the incarnation. You know, that's the the first two, especially chapter two. Remember, he had to suffer like we did. In this chapter, again, he had to suffer. So he doesn't take on humanity and then rid himself of humanity. Uh, He becomes the heavenly high priest. He becomes able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he in, in, continues to be able to, to understand those weaknesses, 
having become incarnate and uh, continuing then uh, to, to be the fully human one. So he's not fully human and then he ceases to be fully human. But it's on that basis that he, he sits at the right hand of the Father. So 2.9, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor on account of his suffering and his death. Here in chapter 5, uh, Jesus can be said to have been perfected once he had passed completely through the suffering. So he suffered, which I suppose is inclusive of his death, but it's after his death, pointing to his resurrection, that he's achieved perfection. That tells us something about our own perfection, that we are passing through suffering, we'll pass through death, but we are being made perfect. We are being made, you know, that we, or as, you know, we, we have resurrection life. In chapter 7, the difference between the Christ as the high priest and the Aaronic high priest, Jesus remains a high priest forever because he no longer is subject to death. If we were simply talking about the state of Christ in his pre-existence, well, of course he's not subject to death. But the point is that Christ has taken on humanity, but it's a humanity that has passed through the resurrection and is represented before God, so that being subject to death, or, or no longer subject to death, is part of what his high priest then mediates to us. So he, 725, Jesus lives to intercede for his people. He's in the state of perfection forever. He was already, you know, if we're, if we're not dealing with the humanity of Christ, well, God is perfect, you know. But we're dealing with the, the idea of the telos, the goal, the fulfillment, of the incarnation. So the moment when he achieves this perfection, uh, I don't think it's narrowed to the cross, that it's not the perfect sacrifice, you know, that it, or a perfect death, not to exclude that, but it's, I think, the moment of the resurrection. And so the Jesus' high priestly service he, is, he accomplishes uh, from the empty tomb. So his priesthood is like that of Melchizedek because of his enduring life. No longer, you know, he's not, he was at one time subject to death in his incarnation. He is no longer subject to death, not simply as the pre-existent Christ was, but now as the fully incarnate one. He has taken humanity and he has deified it. Right? And this is the Eastern Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox tradition puts a strong emphasis on the bodily ascension. I think it's part of their understanding of theosis. It's, it's an Orthodox understanding in the West, but it does not receive quite the same emphasis because we've put the focus on the death of Christ uh, and very often what you get in the Western understanding uh, is a spiritual ascension. But theosis, as, in, as you have it in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, requires uh, the bodily ascension of Christ. 
So, uh, perfection, this is Moffat, perfection as the requisite qualification for him to become the heavenly high priest stands between Jesus' death and elevation to the heavenly high priesthood. After his death, God brought Jesus out of the realm of death and into a life that will endure forever, into perfection. Only after this point can Jesus be said to be perfected and thus qualified to be the heavenly high priest. So it's, I don't mean that it's, uh, 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 perfection is certainly a larger concept than resurrection. It's inclusive of suffering and death, but it's precisely on the basis of her, his perfection that we're able to draw near to God. This is 719. Because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other, other hand, he says that we're able to draw near to God through his in other words, we've been made, he's been made perfect, and we're being made perfect. And so this telos, or perfection, is the basis upon which we then have access to the presence of God. Being made perfect is able to, we are able to draw near. We're able to rid ourselves of anything that would keep us out of God's presence. And we already know what that is. In the Old Testament, what could not be brought into the temple? Well, it was anything to do with death, anything to do, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the, the even in, in an extended sense, would make one impure and not fit to enter God's presence. So, our consciences will be cleansed from in, you know, from any impurity will be made perfect is the the picture or will be made pure i think it's the it, certainly perfection is pointing to the the eschatological resurrection it's the glorification of the mortal body uh, but it's also the the writer of hebrews is going to talk about the internal the conscience the heart the spirit near needs to be purified or perfected does somebody have Hebrews 9, 9 to 12? Because symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with the foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So here's the two ideas in one passage. He cleanses the conscience, having passed into the holy of holies in heaven. It's an interesting concept. That is, the depth of the cleansing and the height of the cleansing are synonymous. And I think the explanation is that Jesus' entry into the Holy of Holies is equated with the, the deep part of human consciousness that needs cleansing from sin. So in chapter 4, the cleansing 
you know, the passage beyond the heavens coincides with the word that can penetrate. Here, the conscience being cleansed and the the tent or the eternal dwelling place of God. He entered into the actual presence of God. We claim that God has entered into us. In other words, the idea in Christianity is that we've become the temple of God. So the two concepts are certainly interconnected here, that the cleansing or you know, perfection, uh, making ready for the dwelling place of God in the Holy of Holies is something that is ultimately affecting our own deepest conscience. In uh, 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, he's talking about the process of being sanctified or being made perfect, that it's commenced, and the high priest is exercising the perfective pow- that perfecting power in our lives now. For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 4.16, we can approach God's throne with confidence right now. The throne is the holy of holies. Right now we've come, he says, uh, to Mount Zion. Rachel, can you read chapter 12, verse 22 to verse 24? Come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, uh, the picture here is that, you know, this the mountain, Mount Sinai, as compared to Mount Zion, uh, the city of Jerusalem as compared to the real city of the living God, uh, that this is not the blood of Abel, this is not the blood of a goat sacrifice, uh, this is better than that. In other words, Abel is the first to suffer, I think, murder. He's the first to suffer violence. I think what Christ is doing is the reversal of the shedding of blood. He's not shedding more blood, but he's giving life then where there was normally the shedding of blood. To read the sacrifice of Christ as simply more shedding of blood is to, in some way, do what pagan religions do. To imagine that the sacrifice of Christ is on the order of any animal sacrifice or you know any political sacrifice or any religious sacrifice does the emphasis on perfection imply that there is an imperfection uh, in Christ and if so is that imperfection the conscience no the that in other words that the point is that the telos or the goal of the incarnation did not include any fault in Christ but it inclu- it was the idea that the whole point of the incarnation was a process that 
had a goal, and that goal was achieved in the resurrection. So uh, the writer will talk about the human conscience being imperfect and will equate it with impurity. But of Christ, Christ, of course, and his point is Christ that is, has passed through this suffering without sin. So it was never that his imperfection or his having not yet achieved the goal was equated with sin or with impurity. It's just that the incarnation was going somewhere and he hadn't gotten there yet. So that, I think our word perfect has the wrong resonance here. It's not when we say, oh, you're not perfect. Yeah, it could even be mature. Yeah, you're not yeah. mature. And we could say there was a time when Jesus was born, you know, that he was not a mature human being. So he passes through all of the stages of life. And until he passes through all of those stages, there is the sense that he is not made perfect. But the, the the point is that we're talking about his humanity. Christ is already part of the Godhead. And so what's being perfected is humanity through his humanity. You know, the, the Eastern Orthodox idea is he became man that we might become God. Uh, if that's too strong, he became man that we might participate in Godhead. And so... That is, the idea here is that what is being mediated in the priesthood of Christ is humanity, but also the, the entire cosmic temple, the material temple, I think, is being mediated so that Christ brings heaven and earth together. He brings man and God together. He brings... You know, in John we talked about this. He brings blood and water together. Blood is humanity. Water is deity. It's a theme in the in Scripture. What is what separates the two is not any inherent problem with material existence or humanity, but the problem of sin. And so, what is being overcome through Christ's humanity? And what is continually then mediated to us is deity, and that is perfection. Maybe a simpler word would not necessarily be deity, but full humanity. Because we are missing out on what it is to be bearing the image of God, because we live in a fallen world. Adam and Eve were created in the perfect image of God but then they fell and everybody else was created from Adam and Eve. And we're living in a world that is missing out on full humanity because we're also missing out on the full deity. We're not walking in the cool of the day with God. I like that, yeah. Because when you say, like, so so that we can be like God, that kind of sounds Gnostic and just not good. Yeah, it, yeah. That's not what you're implying. I yeah. don't think, but it sounds. Yeah. In context, it would be used really bad, that entire sentence. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I like what you said, that it is that we become fully human, and what our humanity is meant for is participation in the Trinity. Yeah, to walk in the cool of the day with God. The Gnostic reading would do away with the humanity. The Gnostic reading would... 
would be a traditional pagan reading of the death of Christ. By the way, the feminist reading and the Gnostic reading tend to overlap here. All right, let's read. Uh, let's read the passage then. Can I say a comment? Sure. Um, a few weeks ago, I was pre- I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I was preaching on Beatitudes and reading Bonhoeffer with it, obviously. And um, when it comes to pure heart, he was talking about to be pure in heart is not only to be pure of like bad intentions or like sinful intentions, but also our own good intentions. But pretty much establishing our being by our, something that we do, whether it be malicious or whether it be good. But if our being, if what we are doing, if how we are driven is established by our own intentions, by our own being, then it is misaligned with God, who God has created us to be, because we are establishing ourselves on our own being, not by God. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. And he was talking about that in very eye-opening. And then here it literally says, like, it talks about the conscious of the worshiper. Then it goes on to say, with food and drink and various washings and regulations of the body, that's all things that people were doing to establish themselves in a good way, not necessarily in a sinful way. So I thought that was... This in, relevant uh, to this passage as well. And this, what you were talking about. Right, yeah. And uh, is this uh, uh, cost of discipleship? Yeah. Yeah, he, he does several things with that. He, he, uh, he also talks about, you know, one that's fully, you know, you have all the gifts and you're working all in you. But if people are drawn to a personality, then it is you know, other than to Christ, then the person is getting in the way of... So, uh, he he was a man who I think was quite gifted and uh, understood that people's giftedness could sometimes be used in a kind of perverse way. Alright, let's read, uh, let's read through it again and you guys can straighten me out on everything that I've said wrong now. Jake, you want to read uh, verse 1? No, I start chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he he's talking about the qualifications of a high priest. He's got to be human. Uh, he's selected from people. He... Uh, you know, and, and Christ is no different in this other than he's not going to offer sacrifice for his own sin. And then, Dave, you want to read verse 2 of chapter 5? Yeah. He's able to deal gent- gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Uh, that he... he uh, experiences human weakness that we know that he experienced temptation uh, I don't think that what the uh, you know what Christ gives us in this perfection necessarily is knowledge 
right, in any kind of traditional understanding of knowledge. Uh, but it's his himself, it's his life. Michael, you want to read uh, verse 3? This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And this, of course, we've already said in chapter 4 that Christ is sinless, that Christ does not uh, have to offer sacrifice. Um, and again, I think we, we, we need to almost take up a new... What's wrong? <laughs> we get different translations of that verse. His sinlessness is a key argument of the writer. I don't know that that... I'm not sure that resonates with us. You know, why is that important? And that was my whole point. Well, if we understand what sin is, sin is this orientation to death that his life overcomes. So his sinlessness is talking about a particular kind of life that he lived. Doesn't mean he didn't go dancing or, you know, something like that. That is, if you trivialize sin, I think Christ's perfection is also trivialized. If you trivialize sin, you're likely to read his high priesthood in terms of human, simply in terms of striving to achieve a particular moral you know, rectitude. Again, I don't want to leave that out, but that's not what he's talking about when he's talking about the perfection or sinlessness of Christ. Uh, and then verse 4, Sharon... And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so Christ is obviously appointed high priest by God. Aaron is appointed high priest by God, that one must be called. That is, that he's, he's making the argument that Christ has the qualifications to be a high priest. Uh, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was a but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I mean, the, the, why the writer chooses these two passages may be something of a mystery, but I think part of the point is that this passage uh, from the Psalms 2-7, right? Is this the one? This is... Uh, so, is talking about his humanity. It's talking about the Davidic throne, that he's going to reign on the Davidic throne. All that the Davidic king represented as a messianic figure, you know, all of that humanity, all of that socio-political, social, I think is contained in the sonship of Christ. Here is the one who's the true king. And so with that comes all that Israel was. And he's going to join that then with verse 6. Miguel, can you read verse 6? As he says, also to in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know. I'm uh, not absolutely certain about Melchizedek, but I feel like I'm in good company because neither is anyone else. <laughs> yes. uh, no. uh, I'll 
I'll give you, next time I'll give you a couple interpretations of Melchizedek, but let me give you a, a kind of standard interpretation here. Melchizedek is the strange figure who comes out and Abraham receives a blessing from Melchizedek. So he's superior to Abraham. And Abraham contains in his loins the Levitical descendants that will become the high priests. So the writer is going to argue, well, who's superior? Well, then Melchizedek is superior. What are the what is the uh, you know the the nature of Melchizedek? He's without father and mother. The writer will say later. I don't know if he means. I think one way of reading this is, in terms of the record, the Levitical priests you had to be able to trace your lineage. You had to be able to say who your father and mother was. I don't know that Melchizedek was literally without father and mother, but as far as the record is concerned, he did not fit into the qualification of the Levitical priesthood. He is a priest forever. That is, there is no... The Levitical priests, they recorded when they died. Uh, There is no record of the death of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is both priest and king. That is, he's the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. Salem, we think, is probably Jerusalem, an early name for Jerusalem. So the psalm, you know, has this lineage that the writer of Hebrews is appealing to outside of the tribe of Judah, uh, in which one, you know, he is a priest, but he's also a king. And so here is one who's greater than all of that contained in Abraham. Here's that which precedes Abraham. It includes Abraham in that he's a son. It includes all of that humanity. But then it, again, I think it's joining humanity to deity. That is, here here is this person, Christ, the Messiah. The Jews had no notion that the king, the priest, the Messiah, would be divine. But neither did they have the notion that one person would fill all of these offices. And so I think that's what's partly what's taking place here. All right, then uh, verse 7. Joel, you can have that one. Now, if you were arguing against me and saying that there was no bodily ascension, this might be a verse you would appeal to. In the days of his flesh. flesh. Uh, Even F.F. Bruce says, well, this isn't talking about the fact, he's not saying that the days of his flesh, that in some way that Uh, the incarnation was limited then to uh, the period before the resurrection. 
his inf- you know what he's talking about I think in this passage Christ was pre-existent and then he was in the flesh and so clearly there is that passage and so I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say uh, that uh, he's talking about the period in which he offered up loud cries and tears that is the period of his suffering in the flesh uh, is the focus Uh, and it's the period then uh, in, in which, of course, we can think of Gethsemane here, in which he's being offered up, in which he's going to pass into death. All right, and then... Wait, ver- don't move on, that's a good verse. Because I think it, like, we when we think of Jesus and his sinlessness, we think that he is unaffected by sin and death, just because he never sinned. And... I think I like this verse and just like realizing it because he was affected by this. He did bear like the hardship of what it means to be human, not what it means to be human, but what it means to live on this earth because of sin and death. Because you don't experience agony and tears apart from truly bearing the burden and carrying the weight of what it means to be affected by the curse. Like, we we feel those things too, but we act on them and feed into it also with sin and death. Rather, but Jesus, he was affected by it, but he was still sinless. And we just think, you know, oh, well, it's just a matter of moral perfection. But I, like, I like this because the peers... The agony show it's more than just moral perfection. I think he suffered it. Yeah, he, he, he understands. Certainly he understands physical suffering. He understands spiritual suffering. He understands psychological suffering. Uh, the, the death of Christ is not like Socrates, you know, that Socrates, it's sort of a game in which he's willing to drink the hemlock and but Christ is pictured in Gethsemane as, you know, in agony. And I think it's not because, uh, I, I think it is completely because of his understanding of the nature of death. I don't think Socrates understood death. And so I think that going into to death with the full knowledge and understanding of what it is does not reduce the suffering, it increases it. Thus he sweat drops of sweat that were like blood. Uh, and then verse 8, I forgot, is it uh, Alec? I mean, we're to you, I haven't I mean, forgotten I already, you. I already read them all. <laughs> well, I'll read 8 again. You did oh, such a good job. Oh, thanks. Uh, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And go ahead with verse 9. And once made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. So there you are, Dave. Yeah. He learned obedience. Uh, you know, he he suffered. He and then was made perfect. That he's perfected in his humanity. He set the goal set, 
You know, and again, the, the, the goal of our own humanity is to be found in the way in which he was human. And then verse uh, 19, Chris. Verse 10. I'm sorry, I'm not seeing very good. 10, <laughs> 10 Maisie. Oh, that was it. Okay. Yeah, the, the, here is the Melchizedek section. He's going to come back to Melchizedek. A lot of stuff on Melchizedek, which is to say a lot of stuff on the high priesthood of Christ. That this is a, the kingship and priesthood of Christ. The, the way in which we understand that tells us the tenor of the Christianity that we believe in. Uh, if his priesthood is you know focused simply around his death I think that that cultic sacrifice then uh, will then become the center of one kind of Christianity but I think if his priesthood is around the movement of his life death resurrection that gives us a very different tenor a very different kind of Christianity one in which I think it's obvious the writer of Hebrews is writing that these people won't become apostate. Uh, that is that the way in which they live their life is one in which they can enter into rest. They can achieve uh, the goal, the telos. They can uh, begin to live out this perfection. I think that in the classical, you know, penal substitution, divine satisfaction, or even in typical readings of Hebrews, uh, that this idea of a full embodied salvation is often passed over. Any comments or questions?